Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 57 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today is the one and only Dr. Peter Stansky. Hey, Shane. Pete, it's been a few episodes. Um, you know, we haven't seen each other for a while, and I don't even know when the last time we were face-to-face. What's news? Well, look, uh, I've seen a lot of airplanes lately, to be honest, and I've uh, met a lot of friends with the Qantas uh, <laughs> airline crews. Uh, also met a lot of customers, oddly enough, um, inside Qantas Lounge. It's amazing who you can bump into um, in the Qantas Lounge, both Melbourne and Sydney, where I tend to frequent a little bit these days. Uh, but yes, I've been on the road quite a bit. Um, big call out to ZeroCon, our friends at Zero. Uh, spent a bit of time in Brisbane a few weeks back, uh, but also been inside panels with customers. We've been talking about uh, innovation, talking about innovation versus renovation as well, in fact. Mm, very good. You know, it's, it's funny you talk about aeroplane lounges because totally true. I can relate to that, you know, <laughs> running into customers here and there. So look, excited to have you back for this session. I know I'm going to be drawing on your experience in software architecture. It could be purely because, you know, you've been in the game longer than me. Either way, it's great to have you here. Thank Pete. you, Shane. And I do have a few gray hairs, which oh, uh, I think we all are. Maybe may reflect my, my uh, maybe wisdom, I would hope, not my age. We'll go with wisdom. Okay, cool. So look, Pete, can you ask Gabe to see if he's available to deliver a session for myself in November? Um, why me? <laughs> you got to record with him. Uh, why don't you just do it yourself? Look, I could, but that's very point the point. Ah, is this a joke perhaps? Is it going to set the theme for the episode we're having today? Maybe. Look, on this themed episode of AWS Tech Chat, we're going to get loose, loosely coupled, and spend the show diving deep into messaging, not only talking about where we have come from, but the various messaging options that exist within the AWS cloud. How's that sound, Pete? That sounds really cool. There's nothing like uh, painting a hopefully a great story between all of our services to help our listeners really get a mental model of how many of these things fit together. Yeah, a cohesive one. And Pete, before we start passing messages to each other today, I'll stop with the jokes, I promise. Um, what's <laughs> happening in the world of AWS Cloud? <laughs> well, the short answer, as always, uh, a lot. Um, there's plenty going on in AWS. Look, the summits are now done for the year, which is awesome. By the way, there is one happening right now as we record, which is October the 3rd. Uh, but funnily enough, um, you know, the big focus at the moment is our big event in Vegas called reInvent. So yes, we haven't spent much time talking about reInvent on the show. So perhaps this is as good a time as ever, Pete, to talk about it. Absolutely. So look, reInvent is uh, basically our global summit, like the main event, if you like, during which we announce lots of things. And it's actually a very different conference because it's actually a learning event uh, for the global cloud computing community. So lots of folks out of Australia and New Zealand and APAC and all over the world travel to Las Vegas. Um, and it's a major, major event because we make a lot of announcements there as well. So this event features lots of keynotes, plenty of announcements, like I said. Um, there's also a lot of training and certification opportunities for folks that go there. Uh, there's going to be over 25 
500 technical sessions, Shane, which is huge. Uh, a partner expert, there's lots of after hour uh, events uh, and so much more. So uh, there's always something for everyone. Um, and having been there in the last year and hopefully maybe even this year, um, it's it's a great place and a lot of fun. Yeah, look, it's in Vegas, so no doubt there'll be more. You know, I say that in air quotes. Look, right. I joke around, but, you know, there will be so much more. You know, there's a deep racer championship, there's hacks and labs, builders fairs, and a separate ML summit, plus more. Look, if you want more information, head over to reinvent.awsevents.com. And look, if you're trying to get yourself there and you need some help, uh, we're here to help you. Uh, so if you go to that site, so reinvent.awsevents.com, as Shane mentioned, it has a justification letter template that you may be able to uh, reuse and uh, you know, hopefully it'll help to grease the wheels in your workplace uh, to maybe get a permission from your manager or your boss um, and give you some talking points around um, why it's of value and also gives you a cost breakdown for the event yeah. as well. Look, I guess putting the cart before the horse, Pete, who should attend reInvent? Look, it's it's an event, it's, it's almost for everyone. Uh, it's mainly for developers, engineers, sysadmins, you know, architects, uh, technical decision making makers. By the way, the, the, the audience is getting bigger and bigger. We're getting lots of folks who are also brand new to cloud, who've got no idea to come along to that event, but also a lot of seasoned folks who've been using us for a long time. And look, we also missed uh, you know the dates for this, and that's in um, Las Vegas, as we just called out, but this is actually happening December 2nd to December the 6th. So definitely, um, well worth checking out. Now we have less than two months to go, Shane. So uh, I would suggest you guys, uh, if you are interested, uh, head over there and book your tickets and accommodations pronto because it does sell out. News-wise, mostly there won't be an update show today. Some really interesting updates in the past few weeks, particularly around limits. You know, we've greatly simplified how you manage EC2 service limits and quotas. It's an opt-in process. But instead of controlling limits on a per instance, you know, type size basis, which was becoming to a degree untenable, we've now provided an option to control on an aggregate vCPU basis, consolidating several instance types and sizes into an easy to follow and manage quota limit. Now you can read more about this on our What's New blog, but we'll cover this in the next episode as there are a few points I want to dissect. And look, this is a bit of a change, right? And, and I remember when I was an SA um, out in the field, um, you know, I always look at instances and so forth as a limit. Now, more and more customers talking about number of cores that they actually require to run the workload. So this is a nice way of actually aligning what our customers have been asking for um, and help them better mentally, again, visualize you know, what the consumption model is going to yeah. look like. But anyway, we'll dig into that in another episode. But news-wise, uh, look, I have no new regions to announce or AZs. We still have 22 regions and 69 availability zones, but we have added more CloudFront edge locations on September the 12th. Very good. All right. So it's in Shenzhen, China, meaning our total is now 191. And this means CloudFront has four pops in four cities across China. With this launch, viewers in Shenzhen are seeing an improvement of around 62% in average latency when accessing content through CloudFront. And as we say, with every edge location we, that we release, right, uh, it means that your bits get to your end users a little bit quicker. So mm. this is awesome to hear. It is. Look, we explained last episode that summits are done for the year. So Pete, onwards and upwards. Uh, upwards? Okay. What, is On- that, what, what does that take us? I don't know, but look, let's just go on with the show. Aren't we already in the cloud? We are. Okay, so look, API this, SOA that. There is no doubt that software is becoming more complicated, but that's not to say it wasn't complicated already. So today on Tech Chat, we're going to talk all things messaging. And Pete, your pedigree is going to come in handy here. Now, my first exposure to messaging was with MSMQ or the Microsoft Messaging Queue in the early 2000s. Even though, you know, not a developer, it was clear to me there was an upside. 
And looking, you know, through the interwebs, in my various roles I've had, I've actually played with the very first message Q platform that was released. Any idea, Pete, what that was? Look, back in the early days, uh, the MSMQ uh, era, uh, I would say maybe we should be talking about a big blue vendor that used to be quite popular with a three-letter acronym. Correct. That is IBM MQ. You know, I used it running on an iSeries box. You know, I don't miss the Alpar days and all that stuff. Look, obviously not the first version, but it was a very solid platform. And look, I'm not here to fling mud, but have you ever had to deal with MSMQ corruption? And the answer is absolutely yes, I have. Uh, oh I was actually gosh. laughing about this one because it goes back um, quite a while and working on financial systems, uh, you know, those those nodes that were actually sending messages via MSMQ needed 15 minutes to drain the messages. There was just so much consumption and there were permissions and security issues and whole raft of things like that. And, uh, you know, one thing I learned from that was it can be really difficult and also it's really hard to uh, to see where things are at. So, you know, things like metrics on QDEPs all that stuff is absolutely important when you're trying to debug something. And if it, if it corrupts, oh boy, are you in a world of hell. So uh, I guess today we talk about messaging chain. We do, yeah. WMI counters to manage this and that. But my issue that I had countless times with MSMQ was, you know, your queue may become corrupt, but that one file on the file system <laughs> may equate to, you know, hundreds of thousands of messages. And yeah, yeah not great. So look, it comes... Oh, look, we've come a long way. Like we had to start we somewhere. We've learned a lot in the IT industry. Um, and today we're going to dive into some of these services that we've got and also open source technologies that many of our customers, many of you guys, uh, can hopefully uh, get value out of by actually learning and standing on the shoulders of others. There we go. Look, it comes back to decoupling in my mind, Pete. You know, things, websites, platforms, things are becoming more complicated and message queues provide an asynchronous communications protocol, which is a pretty big thing here. You know, it's not in line in a synchronous manner. And look, uh, what this really means is that the sender and the receiver of the message do not have to interact with um, each other at the same time. A little bit like email, I guess, right? So messages placed on a queue uh, are stored until the consumer, uh, you know, can basically receive them uh, either implicitly or explicitly, um, depending on the actual size of the queues. And these messages can be transmitted in a in a single message or multiple messages, um, and they actually may be sitting queued up for quite a while in yeah. some cases. So it depends on the actual, uh, you know, the, the mechanism that you use to actually drain those messages that have been on queue. Yeah, absolutely. And that message size can often dictate the use of a message queue. Um, look, we'll cover that shortly. Look, there are messaging platforms like Amazon Simple Queuing Service and others like JMS or the Java Messaging Service. But would you believe, Pete, most real-time operating systems, RTOSs, mm -hmm. such as Amazon FreeRTOS, encourage a use of message queuing as a primary inter-process or inter-thread communication mechanism. So look, the resulting tight integration between message passing and CPU scheduling is attributed for the main usability of real-time operating systems for their applications. And early examples of commercial real-time operating systems that encourage a message queue basis to inter-thread communication can you know go all the way back to like RTX and uh, POSOS Plus, which you know back to the really early 80s. So as we can see, these aren't exactly new concepts. But I want to before I hand things over to you, Pete, let's really focus on the why. I want to talk about the benefits of messaging in general and the optics to why you go down this path. 
Well, let me maybe just insert a sidebar here. You mentioned the Please. 80s, you know, the, the joys of my life occurred back in those days. Um, but look, so protocols drive messages, right? And from the early days back in the 80s when CPUs didn't really have much power, so a la going to, you know, uh, IoT devices, you could almost classify the old hardware as, um, you would have to rely on, you know, um, low-level bit protocols, right? So binary protocols. Eventually, we saw the growth in CPU power, memory, and so forth, you know, bigger buffers. You could start to operate at bite-sized protocols. So if things got a little bit better in the world, we had things like remote procedure calling for RPCs, our first generation of uh, you know communication platforms coming together and using byte and bit protocols to, to drive that. And over the last few years, we've gone up the stack to things like text protocols, which you know encompass you know HTML and you know again we have things like JSON now to describe inter-process communication mechanisms. Uh, and all of this stuff really comes down to this asynchronous communications mechanism which is the protocol. And I said earlier, you know, it's a little bit like email, right? A lot of this stuff, you know, the in email has become the killer app and it has been here f since, you know, the late 60s, in fact, um, you know, helping us to get stuff from A to B. So yeah. fundamental yeah. protocols, fundamental message passing is kind of the concept. So the question around messaging that you asked earlier is really about when you think about where we are today, you know, we speak about microservices and applications being decoupled into small independent building blocks that really help developers you know, develop, deploy, and maintain their applications. And a lot of this stuff comes down to the actual communications of how these things talk to each other. So messages, message queues, you know, all the coordination of these distributed applications can become a real challenge. So this means that messaging is really significant. It simplifies, you know, many of the coding practices that applications have to rely on. And we talked about complexity. You know, if you understand your messaging mechanisms and your cues, you can actually simplify a lot of things. So which ultimately will help you in improving your application performance, its you know reliability, its actual scale, um, and probably most importantly, you can start to think about your application architectures differently in terms of relying on things like pub sub, so publisher subscriber messaging, uh, and also looking at things like fan out patterns to help you deal with processing of information that's coming at you at a really fast clip. Yeah, look, just going back a bit, you just spoke about buffers before. I remember as a young fella, you know, trying to get UARTs that were like 16,550. Does that ring any bell bells so back So UARTs, yes, universal asynchronous receive and transmit devices, which are the serial gosh, ports, yeah. yes. Having, you know, bigger buffers for various things. Um, Totally paid. Look, so you just mentioned PubSub messaging. <laughs> going to take me back here. <laughs> we are going back. Well, yeah. um, so look, you just mentioned PubSub messaging or more accurately, you know, publish subscribe messaging. Look, something I want to park for now, but we'll come back to it. Sure. Look, if we dive a bit deeper into what you said, Pete, you can see, you know, you can use queues to break up existing applications. You know, perhaps you've got that monolith and you want to decouple it into smaller, you know, bite-sized applications. You can use messaging in this way. You know, you can have your multiple programs exchange information between other, between each other in a bit of an inter-process manner, making them easy to test, debug, evolve, and scale. But I think, you know, the thing I'd really like to hone in is on scalability and reliability. Yeah, and look, if we talk scalability, um, queues make it possible to scale precisely where you need, where and when you need to, right? So when you think about a workload that has a peak and a spike, right, you might have multiple instances of your application, um, and they can all, you know, add requests to the queue without the risk of a collision, right? So in other words, you know, if everything's fanning into the database, you can actually alleviate a lot of that back pressure on the actual backend system. So, you know, as your queues get longer uh, with these incoming requests, you can distribute the workload across a whole fleet of consumers, right? Uh, and producers, consumers, and the queue itself can grow and shrink on demand. And you know, when you think about, you know, even taking systems offline, if you 
take a database tier offline, if you enqueue your writes, for example, and you have a cache of the database, you can actually take the back end systems offline and undertake maintenance operations. So queues have a lot more um, you know, application than just scaling. They also can help you be more robust and more resilient and also provide some downtime yeah, if I'll, you need some. Look, I'll give you a concrete example here, Pete. Look, during my time at AWS, I was working with a customer, a big retailer, mm -hmm. and their website went offline during a, let's say- A, a big event? Big event. Yeah. And you know, it went offline because their application front end was checking the database to see if they had actual stock of a product before allocating mm -hmm. to it. To Very common use case. User. Yeah, but they transformed their architecture rather than checking the database, placing a message on the queue. So it would allocate the stock and it would just, you know, first in first served on FIFO or FIFO queue. Yeah. Um, you know, and would just slowly read the messages off the queue and allocate stock that way. So a great way of leveraging queues to provide that reliability aspect. And Correct. look, reliability is what stood out in my MSMQ days. And I'll say when the system was up, and I joke because we did encounter the odd message queue corruption, which, you know, in being fair, was probably due to slow disk IO. Mm -hmm. yeah. Common scenario, Common, yeah. Yeah. the underlying subsystems can't cope, well, good luck to you. Mm. But look, what queues do though, it makes your data persistent and reduces errors that happen when different parts of the system goes offline. So by separating different components with message queues, you can create a more fault tolerant system. In the past, I've worked you know, in scenarios where queues have been used to communicate between an SAP CRM platform and an online system. And the message queue realistically acting like a mechanism to decouple both applications, allowing them to go offline and come back online without impacting each other. Mm -hmm. Look, now we've spoken of messaging and what we've described is the traditional sense of messaging, but there are also other methods. And let's talk about the Amazon offerings here. And I wanna bucket these into a few different categories. There are event streams. So we're talking the likes of Kinesis and Kafka. There's traditional messaging platforms like SQS, RabbitMQ, ActiveMQ. There is PubSub like Amazon SNS or the Simple Notification Service and IoT-based messaging systems like the AWS IoT Core, which leverages protocols such as MQTT. Now, the question, Pete, I have is, as a developer and architect who's looking to leverage the goodness of messaging, mm -hmm. which paths do I take? You know, they all have their own pros and cons. But the goal amongst them, I'll say, is pretty similar, but the minutia between them may mean they aren't appropriate for all use cases. So I think the answer is pick the right tool for the right job, as they say, right? The, the challenge here is making sure you understand your problem domain, right? So think of things like event streams, okay? Very popular at the moment. Um, and fundamentally on, on AWS, we have, you know, um, Kinesis and managed streaming for Apache Kafka or also referred to as the Amazon MSK offering. Now, both of these have been designed to process and analyze streams of data uh, coming in, right? So imagine, you know, people clicking on your website and you want to track everything they've clicked on, you know, huge volumes of data coming at you. That's the kind of use case you're trying to address, right? So it's scenarios where you continuously are adding various types of data, you know, application logs, like I said, click streams, um, and it could be coming in from a whole bunch of different systems. So rather than pushing a message uh, to the message bus, which is quite commonly done, uh, which you know uh, requires a consumer, when you publish a message to the actual stream or journal, it could actually sit there for a certain period, like a retention period. So those scenarios are actually really useful because you can actually hold on to that message for quite a while. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing here that differentiates this type of messaging bus Think about it, like, you know, rhetorically speaking, have you ever worked in an environment where perhaps you consumed messages from a reporting environment? 
So, you know, you don't affect the running of a production or perhaps a DR environment that was a replica of a database. Yeah, I think we all have at some stage, Shane. I think uh, it's a pretty common scenario. Yeah, you know, yeah. don't want to affect production. Well, Spot this on. is how an event stream can help because the message isn't consumed. It's left on the stream until the data retention period elapses. This means that, you know, the reporting environment or that DR environment can read from the stream, perhaps, you know, 30 minutes delayed and, you know, then push messages on. You know, it's really a conversation of log versus journal mode with Kinesis and Kafka versus the consumption model of SQS. And if you need replayability, then a journal mode is, is you know, the thing for you. And look, when you think about um, Kinesis, there are some key concepts to understand around it, and that is the idea of uh, shards, records, and partition keys. So a shard really is based uh, based upon the idea of a unit of a data stream. So one shard provides a given amount of capacity uh, that equates in our terms to one megabyte per second of data input and two megabytes per second of that data output. So one shard can support, say, up to a, a thousand put records per second, which is quite significant. That's a lot, yeah. yeah. it's a heck of a lot, right? And in here you specify the number of shards, so you get to do some capacity planning a little bit up front to decide how many shards you need so that you can create the right data size for, that, for your data stream. So for example, you can create a data stream with two shards if you know you're going to be pushing about 2,000 um, you know, puts per second. Yeah, and look, there's a calculator or something on our website around documents documentation that will help you size your Kinesis stream accordingly. So you've created your shard, but how do you consume your stream? Reading and writing data from a Kinesis stream is done either via the KPL and KCL, which is the Kinesis producer library and Kinesis consumer library. Or you can you know, use an API call, so put record and put records, or you can use the Amazon Kinesis agent. Like our other services, Kinesis has limits by default. Each account can provision 10 shards per region. You know, this is being a soft limit. So with 10 shards, that's 10,000 put records per second, with each put being a maximum one meg blob in base64 encoding. You know, perfect for streaming events and processing them. That's a lot of uh, throughput. a lot of capacity, there. yeah. It is. On the processing side, you can either use a Kinesis client library or the Kinesis API to consume those events from the shard. These client libraries are available in Java, Python, Ruby, Node.js, and .NET. So a lot to get through here, but see our documentation on Kinesis because we have barely scratched the surface here. The other messaging platform that falls into this bucket of event streams is Apache Kafka. And we have a lot of customers actually asking about that and you know, in comparing it to Kinesis. And you know, fundamentally, of course, you can run Kafka on EC2 uh, as you would today on your infrastructure on-premises. Um, and if you would like us to do the heavy lifting for you, we actually have something called the Managed Streaming for Kafka, Apache Kafka service called MSK. So uh, we help you actually um, you know, take care of the operational sides. Yeah, look, Kafka is fast becoming a staple in my customer base. And it's good to see, just like Elasticsearch, we're making the non-trivial task of running Kafka that much easier. Now, there may be some tech chat listeners out there that may have heard of Kafka. Maybe you haven't, but Pete, it's popular. Are you able to give us a bit of an elevator pitch before we get into the weeds on Kafka? <laughs> Let me take a swing at it. So look, like many of the open source products that are out there, you know, that actually grace our lives, you know, Apache Software Foundation has been actually very helpful and instrumental in that. So Kafka is an open source stream processing software platform uh, that was actually originally developed by LinkedIn um, before it was um, donated to the Apache Software Foundation. Now, it's also written in Scala and Java, which also explains a few things. Mm, so look, it's kind of like Kinesis but it's kind of not like Kinesis. And as you said, mm. look, there's plenty of comparisons available online if you search in your favorite search engine, comparing the two. But what I will say, just like our other offerings, manage the service for a Kafka. 
as we say, um, removes the heavy lifting and Amazon MSK provides you, I guess, a kinesis-like experience where you just consume the underlying solution. But obviously, like the name implies, it's based on Kafka. Now, the concepts are a bit different in Kafka versus Kinesis. So, you know, Kinesis has shards, records, and partition keys. We now have records and topics, and they loosely map through to records and shards. Kafka stores records and topics. Data producers write records to topics, and consumers read records from topics. Each record in Apache Kafka consists of a key, a value, and a timestamp. Kafka partitions topics and replicates these partitions across multiple nodes called brokers. And the solution runs as a cluster in one or more brokers. And you want to put your brokers into multiple AWS availability zones to create a highly available cluster. And that's what managed service for Apache Kafka does. Another important topic you will hear is Zookeeper, which is used to coordinate cluster tasks and can maintain state for resources interacting with an Apache Kafka cluster. And look, we all love open source, as I said before, and um, we understand that the world doesn't pivot around AWS Cloud, but Kafka will actually allow you to live in a hybrid world where it could be on-premises or potentially sitting on AWS Cloud. Yeah, look, something I'm glad you brought up, just remember, as you just said, it's open source and MSK is a managed offering of Apache Kafka. You know, it's the real deal here. It's a full fat version of Apache Kafka. So as you mentioned, you know, you can run this on-premises or on a multi-cloud and you can migrate your existing Kafka cluster into AWS. Exactly. And look, if you are in the Kafka game, you probably know that there are open source tools like MirrorMaker that helps you replicate data from your um, Kafka clusters and potentially move them into the Amazon MSK cluster itself. Yeah, awesome. And look, quickly before we move on, Kafka or Kinesis, you know, is it potato or potato conversation <laughs> here? And I think it depends. You know, I spoke about the portability across environments. And if that's important to you, head down the Kafka path. But if it's a greenfield solution, look towards Kinesis. And I say that due to the tighter AWS platform integration. You know, Kinesis is tightly integrated into, you know, Lambda through to S3 and Dynamo. And there are plenty of AWS services that are tightly integrated into Kinesis. Another key difference in my mind is the journal length time on Kinesis for a stream as it's a maximum of 168 hours or seven days. Whereas Kafka is based on the maximum disk space of your MSK broker. So before you head down the path, there are comparisons online, read up, or if you're lucky enough to have an AWS solution architect at hand, you can always engage them to help you guide you down the right path. I think we might be done here on event streams. I think we may be indeed, Shane, but that's certainly, yeah, the big call out here is talk to your solutions architect. Uh, our jobs are to demystify all these things and help you make the right decisions. So, uh, you know, even if you haven't got your solutions architect, come and reach out to us and uh, we'll hopefully um, arrange one to come and visit you. Very good. All right, so a bit of AWS history here. So SQS, or the um, Amazon uh, Queuing Service, was one of our first services to be released, and it was released way back in um, July 13th, 2006, Shane. That's 13 years ago, uh, and it's also one of our most mature services um, because it's been around for a long, long time. Yeah, look, the changelog for SQS is multi-pages now. You know, it's a very mature service. And I think with the rise of SOA or service-orientated architecture and frameworks like TOGAF being in vogue, you know, this was an approach that was widely being adopted. And look, so we actually dug up the early press release for SQS and uh, it's uh, the pitch goes somewhere along the line. This is going back to 2006. Pricing is on a pay-as-you-go basis with no startup fee or minimum monthly charge. You pay 10 cents for every thousand messages, so 0.0001 of a cent per message, and a 20 cent per gigabyte of data transfer rate. Wow, that was a crazy back then. Yeah, it is. Like, I wonder how many 1RU pizza boxes you get <laughs> 
and you know <laughs> sand-based storage with fiber channel switches you know like totally game changer so cheap. High level hardware just on that yeah. alone yeah so we kind of level set queues above, but let's talk about SQS here, Pete. There are now two different types of queues, standard and FIFO, or first in, first out. FIFO being a relatively new thing. So standard queues, they support a nearly unlimited number of transactions per seconds per API action. But in order to do this, there's a few trade-offs you need to architect around. And you know, after all, life is all about trade-offs. A message with this kind of queue is delivered at least once, but occasionally more than one copy of a message is delivered. And lastly, you know, it's best effort ordering. Occasionally, messages might be delivered in an order that may be different from which they were sent. And this happens due to our multi-AZ nature and the unlimited throughput of SQS standard queues. So use standard queues for tasks that can accommodate messages that arrive more than once or out of order. You know, for example, you might want to decouple live user requests from intensive background work, you know, maybe let users upload media whilst resizing or encoding, or allocate tasks to multiple worker nodes, such as processing credit cards for validation or batch messaging, you know, for future processing. Today, I'd recommend picking the appropriate tool for the job in the land of SQS. So that's FIFO or standard queues. But when everything in the past looked like a nail, you know, standard queues, and all we had was a hammer, Pete, I have to ask, given you've been around, and mm -hmm. I say that for utmost respect, you know, your early days as being an SA, how are customers back then or even today dealing with SQS and the challenges associated with, you know, more than once delivery and the fact that queues may not have been FIFO? Yeah, so look, obviously this can be uh, a bit of a challenge for the developers building uh, applications that are relying on queues. So to address these, you need to actually think about it and address it in your code base, right? And uh, but it can handle it can be handled in a number of different ways. So for example, you know, embedding sequence IDs in a message payload certainly helps. Right, so you know exactly what you're handling. So if you've received it twice, you know about it. And when you do receive things twice, you need to be able to um, deal with uh, you know, making an app idempotent, which means you can replay the same message multiple times, time and time again, without adversely affecting your outcomes. In other words, if you just take something off the queue and you insert it into a database um, and you're not relying on unique IDs uh, to, to have clashes, you can actually keep reinserting the same row of data, like that you know, a unique ID I just mentioned earlier, as a, as a key into a database. You can keep reinserting multiple times if you read that message multiple times off the queue. So there are lots of, uh, lots of creative opportunities for you to actually look at this, but what this comes down to is dealing and operating in a new world where large scale and eventual consistency come together. And a lot of application developers historically, you know, in my very you know, early era, would always rely on synchronous communications end to end with multiple tiers and you're using queues as the mechanism or the bridges between those tiers, uh, you need to become more aware as an architect and a developer to consider you know, eventual consistency as, as, as a mechanism here. So for customers, you know, this is what we often told them, think about all these um, issues. Um, and I wouldn't really call them shortcomings. The, the kind of scenarios which you will face no matter what you do, even if you don't use SQS, when you are really on scale, pushing you know, tens of thousands of, of messages through a queue, you are going to experience very similar scenarios. Having said all that, now that we have FIFO-based queues, um, this is a bit of a, a difference. As the name implies, it's a first in, first out, uh, plus you know, once message processing, so delivery of that. But there are trade-offs when it comes to actually using FIFO queues because it actually has an impact on the throughput, which means that we actually can put only up to 300 messages per second. 
And that's, that's the secret. If you know what the ceiling is going to be, you know how you can architect things, you then can actually be more predictive and prescriptive about addressing some of those challenges like deliver at least once messaging. Yeah, exactly. Look, feature-wise, SQS is pretty nifty. And if you've been in the messaging caper for some time, I'm not going to go through specifically what SQS can do. But more so, here are some features that stand out that are differentiating. So you can have unlimited Amazon SQS queues with an unlimited number of messages in any region. That's pretty cool. And whilst the message payloads can contain up to 256 kilobytes of text in any format, each 64 kilobyte chunk of payload is billed as one request. So, you know, if you have a single API call with 256 kilobyte payload, it's going to be billed as four requests. However, if you want to send messages larger than 256 kilobytes, you can use the Amazon SQS extended client library for Java, which uses S3 to store the message as you know, payload, and then a reference to the message payload is sent using SQS. Now, this is something you know, I actually discussed in the past in my MSMQ days. Where were you SQS back then? That said, I probably I didn't know Java. Um, I may either be still waiting for a C-sharp option or probably build my own. Another cool feature is queue sharing, meaning you can securely share an SQS queue anonymously, you know, with or with specific AWS accounts. May not be for everyone, but it is an option. We have server-side encryption or SSE, as the name implies, done with KMS, you know, stores your messages, encrypts them, stores them at rest in an encrypted manner. So where SQS shines is in the integration with a wider AWS ecosystem of services. So here's an example. So messages get placed on a queue. Imagine it's orders off your website, on your e-commerce site, and then you read read them off um, with the consumers. So you can actually get a sudden influx of orders. When, and rather than having a fixed number of consumers, you can actually scale your consumers based on the queue depth to ensure that all of your messages are being processed in a timely fashion. So you could actually do things like auto-scaling of your instances on the back of the number of messages that are actually on queue. Which yeah, is pretty cool. It is very cool. And that example, I think, is important. You know, we spoke about the decoupled nature of queues. I mentioned before I worked for a company where a message queue was a broker between SAP and an online system. So, you know, sometimes a system would go offline, say SAP went offline, and it'd end up being a backlog of messages sitting in the queue, you know, as per design. Now, if the outage was really long, you know, you'd end up with a huge backlog. It could be hundreds of thousands of messages. And for a fixed number of consumers, it could take hours or even days for the processing to catch up. You know, that is an awesome feature there, Pete. Now, we also have another messaging platform in the same vein as Kafka, I guess you could say. Indeed, and it's actually called Amazon MQ. It's based on Apache MQ, but like MSK, it's also managed by us. Now, what you get is direct access to ActiveMQ console and also um, API access for protocols for messaging, which include things like JMS, NMS, AMQP, Stomp, MQTT and WebSocket, some protocols which are you may have heard of or some that you potentially are using every day like JMS. And the value prop uh, is that we provide the uh, the setting up of a message broker which provisions all the infrastructure capacity you requested. So it includes the broker instances, its storage, uh, all the associated software. And once your broker is up and running, we manage all of the ongoing software upgrades, security patches, as well as fault detection and recovery. Uh, and as you would expect from Amazon MQ, uh, it stores messages redundantly across multiple availability zones for durability. So with active uh, standby brokers, um, Amazon MQ automatically will fail over to a standby instance in the event of a failure, uh, so you can continue sending and receiving messages. So your applications hopefully are completely unaware of this. So Shane, if you were asked, where should I use MQ over SQS? Ooh, good question. What would you say? I would broadly say, 
let me think about this. <laughs> Put me on the spot here. So look, if you're using messaging with an existing application and want to move your messaging to the cloud, you know, quickly and easily, I consider Amazon MQ as the path of least resistance. You know, it may even be a sacrificial architecture. You know, as you've read before, you know, it supports a bevy of industry standard protocols. You know, you can switch from any standard-based messaging broker to Amazon MQ. You know, for example, you know, AMQP and Stomp are pretty widely accepted. So if your application today uses this, you know, it's a quick win. But, you know, if your application is greenfield, I'd actually consider SQS. I'd go down that path. You know, it's lightweight, it's fully managed and scales almost infinitely and provides a simple, easy to use API. And look, that kind of describes the AWS holistically. You know, our native services are lightweight, they provide cloud scale, um, but there are also other options. So speaking of other options, you know, we mentioned briefly uh, SNS, and we, so maybe we should talk about uh, the move to PubSub messaging chain, right? Uh, you know, a, a, a staple in the messaging industry these days, you know, if you just look at your phones as an example, there's a lot of that going on, right? Oh, yeah. So, so I think we should think about SNS, and the, which stands for the Amazon Simple Notification Service. And the, you know, if you would look at the, the marketing bumper sticker that describes it, it's about, you know, durable, secure, fully managed PubSub messaging service that enables you to dis decouple microservices, you know, distributed systems and serverless applications. So fundamentally, what that means is uh, if you put aside um, all these tools into a toolbox as an architect, you could develop lots of very funky applications. Totally. Look, and what SNS allows you to do is create topics to which you can push really high throughputs to many subscribers. Now, this is often referred to as a found-out architecture. You publish a message to a topic to a large number of subscriber endpoints for parallel processing. That could be SQS queues, Lambda functions, HTTPS, webhooks, Additionally, SNS can be used to fan out notifications to end users, including you know, mobile push, SMS, and email. So let's make it real here. So we know my house does a lot of magic stuff. One of the things I do is use SNS extensively. For example, if you leave an external door open too long with the heating or cooling running, you're gonna get notified that the heating or cooling got suspended and you need to close the given door or perhaps the in-laws come over. I won't tell you what it does there, but it actually does something. Say a second, so you have logic for your in-laws, do you? Uh, fascinating. Would you expect anything else? Is that what it does, lock or open? I can't, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you off air. All right, Pete. off air. Okay. All right, so look, I use topics, you know, I have a high and low priority topic. All the events in my house get pushed to a topic, which Lambda is listing. You know, Lambda then pushes the events into DynamoDB, so I've got a bit of a, you know, change history of what is occurring in my house. But if I deem whatever event that just transpired to be of importance, a message is sent to another topic with an SMS-based subscribers, hence the parent-in-laws. Okay, so let's go a bit deeper here, uh, other than your house being fully powered by SNS. Um, so Amazon SNS follows the publish and subscribe or pub-sub messaging paradigm, so, which means that um, with notifications being delivered to multiple clients using a push mechanism, it eliminates the need to periodically check or poll. Right? These devices don't have to keep polling back and saying, is there something for me? This actually gets delivered asynchronously. Uh, so new information updates can be delivered to you, things like you know, uh, when you look at your phone, all this stuff is popping up, really. that's fundamentally driven by a PubSub model. Um, now, this is a bit different to the push mechanisms to an endpoint, right? It's not really storing them. Uh, and to be clear, there is no data retention in SNS. And this is uh, the nature of push messaging, right? Because you, you can't afford to store millions and billions of messages, in fact. Uh, so there are a couple of things to also be aware of. So if you use um, Amazon SNS, um, there are also retry mechanisms. So all the messages sent to uh, SNS are processed and delivered immediately. Now, if a message cannot be successfully delivered on the first attempt, SNS will actually implement a four-phase retry policy chain. 
Now, what it will try to do is, it'll try to do a retry with no delay in between attempts, so keep going, right? Uh, it may also actually attempt retries uh, with a minimum delay between the attempts, as well as retry with some back-off models like either linear or exponential back-offs to actually slow down uh, those attempts. And also, fundamentally, can retry with some maximum delay between attempts. So you yeah. can actually configure these mechanisms yourself for your SNS delivery mechanisms. Yeah, and look, the retries will be different depending on the endpoints being used, but the numbers are a little bit comedic. You know, I'm not going to read them all out, but let me read out my two favorite, and that is for... SQS and SMS messaging. So for SQS, if an SQS queue is not available, SNS will retry 10 times immediately, then 100,000 times every 20 seconds for a total of 100,010 attempts over 23 days before the message is discarded from SNS. So do you feel uh, like it's it's really doing its best? It's it's trying. It's pretty, trying hard. Pretty, pretty, pretty obsessed about that message, it right? It is, isn't it? Um, on the SMS front, if an SMS endpoint is not available, SNS will retry two times at one second apart, then 10 times exponentially, backing off from one second to 10 minutes, and finally 38 times every 10 minutes for a total of 50 attempts over more than six hours before the message is discarded. That's... um. Pretty interesting. But as Pete mentioned, there is no journal, there is no queue. So effectively, you need to ensure your endpoint is online. You know, don't depend on this retry mechanism. And that is why SNS is often used in conjunction with other services. I just mentioned SQS, you know, a common architectural pattern is fan out. And that occurs in a variety of ways. Two that come to my mind, and I'm sure, you know, there are others, is splitting a message queue, you know, one message in and then forking into multiple SQS queues. And you may fan data into production and non-production environments. You know, you may have a process to which the message ends up being written to a production environment. But you also may want that to go into a non-production environment, you know, such as reporting or DR. Message format-wise, SNS sends a JSON payload delivered over HTTP, HTTPS, email JSON, and SQS. And uh, that can actually include additional arbitrary message parameters, such as the message ID, a timestamp, uh, topic ARN, the actual type of message, subject, message, or rather the payload itself, and actually a signature or a signature version, to be more precise. So when sending messages, there are limits. With the exception of SMS messaging, um, SNS messages can contain up to 256 kilobytes of text data, which can include JSON or XML or basically any unformatted text. So each 64 kilobyte chunk of published data is built as one request. So for example, a single API call with a payload of 256 kilobytes will be built as four individual requests. And also if you're using SNS, and obviously this is something that uh, Shane would use quite a lot in his house SMS notification system for his in-laws arrival, uh, each SMS message can contain up to 140 40 bytes and the character limit depends on the actual encoding scheme. And what that means is, you know, depending which character you use, we, uh, that has an impact on the actual deliverability size. So if you're using GSM characters, that's 160 characters. If you're using ASCII characters, it's 140. And it's only 70 characters if you're actually using the UCS2 character typeset, which is the universal coded character set, um, which is an ISO standard, which defines many of the foreign different character codes that are actually out there. So if you publish a message that exceeds the size limit, SNS sends it as multiple messages, each fitting within the size limit. Therefore, the total size limit for a single SMS published action is 1,600 bytes, Jane. To get started with Amazon SNS, it's really easy. You know, I started off initially using the AWS tools for Windows PowerShell before moving to Bodo 3 in Python. The API and SDK is mature and it's available in an SDK to meet your needs. Now, it may not be obvious, but all these things, you know, IoT things we have in our lives today emit a lot of telemetry. 
So it would be wrong of us not to cover this, but we're going to lightly skate around the messaging aspect of IoT Core as obviously there's a lot more than just messaging. We've spoken about MQTT before on the show, so in case you missed our riff, MQTT or Message Queue Telemetry Transport is an ISO standard protocol for PubSub messaging. It works on top of TCP IP and it's been designed with a small code footprint and where network bandwidth is limited. This translates into really you know, low power and limited reliability of networks. So our IoT platform consists of multiple AWS services, but what we're going to cover is the IoT message broker service. Indeed, and the message broker is really a high-throughput PubSub messaging broker that securely transmits messages to and from all of your IoT devices and applications which have low latency and often devices that have low power as well. Now, having said that, you can actually use IoT for a whole bunch of other things outside of IoT, just as a sidebar. So the message broker's topic structure is similar to SNS. It will allow you to send messages to or receive messages from as many devices as you would like, which is kind of cool. So it supports messaging patterns ranging from the one-to-one communications all the way through to control messaging of one-to-one million or even more, Shane. So that's pretty cool. That is huge. It is huge. And also what you can do with it, you have fine-grained access controls that enable you to manage the permissions of the individual connections at the topic level, which ensures that your devices and applications will only send and receive the data that you want them to receive, which is a very important aspect, especially in IoT, where you have lots of devices and you want to have security across the entire device, the application, and its communications channels. So, like our other services, the message broker is a fully managed service, so no matter how you choose to use it, it will continue scaling automatically with your message volumes without requiring to do, run any other infrastructure yourself. So it's fully serverless. That's very cool. So look, being PubSub, it is similar to SNS, you know, and as you just mentioned, Pete, people are using the IoT service, message broker specifically for other use cases. So clients send data by publishing a message on a topic like SNS and clients receive messages by subscribing to a topic like SNS. When the message broker receives a message, it forwards a message to all clients subscribed to the topic. So simple, right? Right. So the message broker maintains a list of all client sessions and the subscriptions for each session. And when a message is published to a topic, the broker checks for sessions with subscriptions that match the topic. The broker then forwards the published message to all sessions that have a currently connected client. And look, protocol-wise, IoT Core uses MQTT and uh, HTTPS with X509-based certificates um, and HTTPS and the MQTT over WebSockets with SIG v4 authentication, which we have covered in the past episodes as well. Now, it must be said that if you do end up using X509 certificates on port 443, you can also run them on port 883 as well as 8443. But if you do use 443 as your port, you must use application protocol negotiation, which is an extension of the TLS and part of the RFC 7301. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that with the um, ALPN, which the client sends a list of supported application protocols as part of the actual TLS client hello message, and then the server chooses the protocol and sends the selected protocol as a part of the TLS server hello message back. Now, what this means is that the application protocol negotiation is then established and um, accomplishes the, the handshake required for a TLS connection without adding additional network round trips. And basically means that the server communicates with the client, uh, potentially with different certificates uh, depending on the application protocol selected. So there's a lot of uh, detail in here. And by the way, um, you know, there's a lot of work has been done uh, in, in this space, especially with the um, ALPN, uh, which actually comes 
a little bit historically from the speedy protocol that was developed and then dropped. And uh, a lot of this stuff also is part of HTTP2 protocol. So in summary, the IoT core and the message broker is a PubSub MQTT platform. But if you were paying attention earlier, I said one of the protocols that Amazon MQ supports is MQTT. So again, when to use. I would say, you know, use the IoT message broker when you need more than just messaging. If your use case involves IoT devices, telemetry, device management, device security and analysis, then the message broker is suitable for you. But if you need durability of messages where scale isn't an issue and the use of multiple protocols, not just MQTT, Amazon MQ may be right for you. Yes, and look, as you can see, see here, Shane, there's plenty of options available to developers to choose from. And uh, we hope that this episode of Tech Chat has helped you guys to uh, maybe distill some of those things down to the core, the right messaging platform choice selection for your application needs. And uh, hopefully some of these um, uh, will help shape your future applications as you build them. Yeah, look, to summarize, look, we offer a suite of managed messaging services. If you need pool-based messaging systems that's durable, Look at either Kinesis, Kafka, SQS, or MQ. Dissecting that a little bit more, if you need a journal consumption method, leverage Kafka or Kinesis. SQS is deeply integrated into AWS, providing pool-based messaging with many features, and it now comes with FIFO, whereas Amazon MQ speaks countless different protocols, enabling integration with many existing applications. And SNS and IoT Message Broker are both push-based platforms, right? So SNS leverages the variety of different endpoints, such as Lambda, SQS, email, HTTP, and uh, SMS, as well as the IoT message broker, which is designed for high volume MQTT-based um, workloads. So having said all of that, we didn't get to talk to you guys about the Amazon Event Bridge service, but we have covered it in a past episode, which is basically, you know, for those of you who missed that episode, it's episode 52, and it's a serverless uh, event bus that helps you route messages between systems and application chain. Good one. Okay, look, I hope our listeners got the message there, Pete, as they consume this show on their given platform. So to close the show out today, it was a messaging-themed affair. You know, we started the show reminiscing about messaging, messaging history, going back, way back, looking at where we came from and how we arrived at the position we are in today, and more importantly, why use messaging and the benefits you can derive in decoupling your architecture. And we started with the uh, event streams covering both Kinesis and managed streaming for Apache Kafka, or MSK as we call it, uh, which are both designed to process and analyze streaming data for lots of specialized needs of your applications. And before looking at what one would consider a more traditional messaging bus with uh, SQS and Amazon MQ, which are both durable pool-based messaging platforms, and with SQS being very lightweight and tightly integrated, um, and Amazon MQ supporting a variety of protocols, making it a great choice for existing applications that use industry standard protocols and uh, have a need for lots of different APIs. Yeah, look, that was pool-based messaging. We then moved to push with Amazon SNS and the IoT Message Broker, both PubSub platforms and enable you to build fan-out architectures with hundreds of thousands to millions of subscribers before quickly discussing at a high level which messaging platform is right for you. You now have more than a hammer to build your application, so Maslow would be proud, Pete. <laughs> I think we're done here, Pete. Look, thanks for stopping by and even more of a treat face-to-face. It's been fun, Shane, guys, and thank you for having me back on the show. I've, I've missed being part of it. I'll do my very best to uh, travel less and talk more on the podcast. Excellent. A win for all. Look, listeners, you know what to do. Keep the feedback coming. Let us know at awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of the show. Hopefully, they're not going to end up in no dead letter queue. Join <laughs> us again in two weeks' time, to which we'll be back with a round of updates that occurred in the last month. But until next time, bye for now. And keep on building. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. 
you like this, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>